Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. What's up, people? Welcome. Other Life, the greatest podcast on the internet, if you're interested in Strange, interesting, very independent, wild, undomesticated intellectuals and creators who are extremely online. That's the new tagline for the podcast. Welcome. If it's your first time coming here, maybe you're here for the first time because you know Ayla or you're a fan of Ayla's. Uh, this is my podcast. I just, I'm Justin Murphy. I do whatever I want. <laughs> uh, if you uh, haven't subscribed, please go ahead and do that. And also, folks, I have to remind you all, I know a handful of you are not yet subscribed to the actual podcast. Get the podcast on your phone. It's much easier to listen to. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, you should be able to find the Other Life podcast. So uh, before you forget, go and subscribe. You're not going to want to sit on YouTube for everything. It's just inconvenient. So today we're going to be talking with an interesting young woman named Ayla. Uh, she's been on my radar for quite some time. Uh, I have been told many times that I am the male version of Ayla, <laughs> and uh, that's a kind of irresistible thing to look into. So, of course, uh, I've been paying close attention to Ayla, and I think uh, she's very cool. She's a very interesting, smart person, and she has a very interesting background. And she's definitely in this camp of what I think of as sort of extremely online and very undomesticated, free-thinking people who s seem to not really play by any of the rules, but find a way to basically think whatever they want and say whatever they want and they make it work. And that's exactly the type of person that I'm most interested in, that I most admire. And that's a kind of recurring type of guest that I try to bring onto the podcast. So I think Ayla totally fits into that. I think she's very smart and interesting and I've never talked with her before. I don't know too much about her other than what's publicly available. So I'm just looking forward to getting to know her, understanding her story, and trying to understand how her mind works, and also understand how she has kind of developed the personal life and career or whatever you want to call it that she has developed. So I actually, I think she's with us now in the wings. So I think I will cut this introduction short. There's really not too much else to say. Oh, other than real quick, um, the LA event that I'm doing at the end of February uh, the based mansion, I literally have rented a mansion in LA, uh, <laughs> and it's actually already booked up. Uh, there are going to be more than 15 people sleeping in this house with me for two nights from February 28th on that Friday night. There's going to be a live podcast show, uh, a live show of the other life podcast and after party at a really cool venue that we've already booked. Also, uh, it's at a really nice, but kind of gritty family owned dining hall. It's like some Danish family and uh, the Highland park neighborhood. We've booked it. It's a massive place. And uh, yeah, we're going to do a live podcast and then we're, there might even be like a rapper <laughs> afterwards. Uh, we're going to try to make it weird and cool. And there's going to be a surprise special guest for the podcast. And this is my first time trying to do a proper 
live public event. So I'm super pumped. Um, there are tickets available online, uh, but the base mansion, which is kind of going along with that the weekend after from that night on is already booked out. So yeah, I'm glad that came together. All right, let's not keep Ayla waiting anymore. Oh, big shout out to my patrons. Also, thank you all for supporting what I'm doing. I would not be able to do this without you. So uh, yeah, big thanks. Shout out. All right, Ben, let's bring her in, shall we? Ayla, how's it going? Can you uh, see me and hear me okay? I can see you and I think I can hear you. <laughs> Excuse me. Can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. How are you Fantastic. doing? Fantastic. All right, hold on. I'm going to have to do this. <coughs> Getting over strep throat. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah, I'm safe, but it's like that long tail where you're just like hacking for no particular reason for like a week afterwards. So yeah. Are you in pain? Is your throat in pain? No, zero pain. Is this why it's like very pointless? I'm like, well, I wish that something were happening. Like there was some sort of like movement inside my throat. Like at least it hurts. Like, no, something is moving. No, it's just it's like pointless. Hey, well, better than pain. Yes. So where are you calling in from today? You're in the Bay Area. Is that right? In uh, San Francisco area, uh, I would say more, but I can't think of anything interesting to say about that. No, that's cool. Do you live in like a shared house? Yeah, I live in a rationalist house or rather a house populated by people who like reading rationalist blogs. Interesting. So it's all rationalists? Yeah. How many yeah. of you? I think like 11 of us. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, this, this area is like heavily populated with rationalist houses. So there's like so many within a walking distance. Is that right? Like and that's San Francisco, not Berkeley. It is Berkeley. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I kind of had, had you pegged at. Uh, so that there's like a neighborhood of rationalist houses, not just a rationalist house. Yeah. There's, there are many, I think someone counted and there were 28 or something. Really all in like a one mile radius. Um, I think most of them are in this radius and there's like a couple that are scattered out. It's more of a hub. That's interesting. And how long have you been living in that area? About a year. Okay. And do you love it? Uh, <laughs> I do not love it. I like it. I, I It hits a lot of the things that I enjoy. Um, there's like a, 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 a dance that I want more of in my life that rationalists are not too big on dance. I've been like trying to bring it into the rationalist sphere, which has been working a little bit, but I, I want more sort of physical movement. Mm. Now your blog is called knowing less. Is that a controversial opinion or is that a controversial ethos that you represent in the rationalist yeah. sphere? <laughs> yeah. I feel kind of bad because when I first was getting into rationality, it was like slightly after having done a whole bunch of acid. And I was like really not good at talking about it because I was like kind of one of those stereotypical burned out people who uh, say crazy stuff and like expect it to make sense. And so that was like the clash with the rationalists at that time where I would be like, but reality is an illusion. And they'd be like, come on, really? Um, I don't blame them for that. Uh, nowadays, it's a little bit calmer because a lot of rationality sphere is starting to get interested in like Buddhist type thinking. And I'm like a slightly less insane now. So that's good. Hmm. All right. So what, what is the best thing about living with rationalists and what's the worst thing? Uh, best thing is that it's like not very fearful. Like if something happens, you just talk about it and everybody's like absurdly sometimes infuriatingly reasonable where they're like, Oh, well, everybody has, um, their own perspective and we're going to just explore this and like figure out a system to it's like the most reasonable calm 
possible thing I could have lived in. Um, and the worst thing is, I think, the dancing. I don't know. There's sort of this like vividness that's missing. Um, mm. Too much, too much Apollo, not enough Dionysus. Something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. So, okay, let's. I'd love to, if you wouldn't mind, unpack a little bit about how you how you've got up to this point because you have a, I think, a quite a kind of interesting and rich personal history. And I won't make you kind of go through the whole story, whole story or whatever, but uh, maybe just correct me if I'm wrong or if I have any false impressions. But from what I've gathered, I believe you you were originally raised as a fundamentalist Christian. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then, right. Okay. And then I think you you did work some kind of normal jobs and then you went into camming for a while. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Right. And so then somehow you kind of magically uh, landed in rationalist subcultures mm-hmm. in California. So how did, how did that all work? <laughs> how did that all work? Uh, are you asking about well, like a general I, overview? Um, maybe, maybe the gap you could fill in for me is the, the, the period between the camming and the extremely online rationalist uh, provocateur living in the Bay area with rationalists. But so there wasn't actually that much of a gap. It kind of like slowly streamlined into it because as a cam girl, you get a big audience. And I think I had like 15,000 Twitter followers from camming like okay. roughly. So like a lot of my original online presence was through porn. And I said a lot of dumb controversial shit as a cam girl too. Very controversial in the cam girl community. Other cam girls didn't like me very much. It was like not very good, which is fine. I don't need to be liked by other cam girls that much. My coworker is right there. <laughs> um, so yeah. Right. So uh, you- and, and then I started doing like surveys and questions on the cam girl and porn population first. Um, and then once I quit camping, it sort of like just transformed after that. And I think someone told me that, correct me if I'm wrong, but someone told me that you were one of the highest paid cam girls out there for a time. Um, likely. Um, it, it's really hard to know because to, to compare across cam stuff, um, but it, my highest earning month was $50,000. So, which, oh, yeah. and this was in 2013, I think. So it's highest earning months nowadays are significantly higher than that. But at the time, um, that was probably one of the highest, highest paid yeah, hell yeah, good for you. And are you Thank still you. doing that or no? No, no. Uh, which was just funny because this sort of setup, like I had to set up my webcam and I like cleaned out my background so I didn't look like a slob. And I was like, well, this is very reminiscent. I haven't done this in years. Uh, That's kind cool. of nice, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> no, I was going to make an off-color joke, but I won't. Um, cool. So. Do you feel like in your experience with all of that, like what did you learn from, all, what did you learn about human psychology and consumer behavior? From, from being camming? Emperor? Yeah. Uh, yeah, quite a lot. That taught me mostly everything I know about marketing, which is not a ton, but most of it. But basically like, specifically like male-female dynamic was really important. Like like I've written an article, which maybe you've read, um, but like a big aspect of this is uh, having men compete uh, visibly in front of each other is really important um so instead of having like a one-on-one private dynamic with the girl um you get her attention by winning over the other men and so this is like a really important aspect of cam girl psychology um, that was really key so taught me a lot about that about like like competing for status um in the eyes of some sort of like elevated person uh, mm. very important to play off of that so how did that carry over to your non-sexual kind of twitter intellectual strategy 
It actually, it hasn't mostly because I'm not monetizing my Twitter strategy that much. The Cambrill strategy was, was based around maximizing money. Um, Twitter strategy. I don't really have one. I'm kind of surprised that I'm doing so well because I it's sort of like the, I, you, you probably experienced this where you assume the way you think is default. And then you're very surprised when other people react as though you're doing something strange. Mm. I have that all the time. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why did this get that many retweets? I don't, it's just like a normal thing. I kind of find it hard to believe that someone as smart and clever as you r- really truly has no kind of mental model of strategic internet activity. So I'm, I'm not doubting your sincerity, but I want to I want to pr- pry a little bit more because I suspect that it on the Twitter game, for instance, of course, it's not monetized, but it's also intrinsically gamified, mm-hmm. right? It's intrinsically you're trying to score points in some way, no matter how you see it. And of course, it's a it's a game about status and and influence and and attention, whether you like it or not, right? Whether you, whether it's conscious or not. So I'm sure there must be from your years of camming, there must be some lessons that carried over, some practices right. or 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 ideas. Likely, it's it's hard for me to identify like specific things that are in common with camming and Twitter, um, but stuff like, for example, I'm more likely to respond to you if you have a lot of Twitter followers. Sure. And, you know, that kind of, it's like not the most flattering thing to say because a lot of people really value, you know, like being c- common people around. We're like, honestly, I just, there's too many notifications. Like if you, more people follow you, more people are going to see the thing I say, I say it to you. Right. And then like, that's also probably a, something you might count as tr- Twitter strategy. I think. Now, how about for instance, you do a lot of polls on Twitter a lot. I think yeah. more than anyone I follow, you, you're you're always coming up with ideas for polls and posting polls. Is that not perhaps a kind of carryover from the idea that you learned in camming of making guys compete? Are you essentially kind of putting putting you're, you're putting prompts out into the wild and then making thirsty men kind of uh, <laughs> respond intellectually this time? But maybe it has the same kind of effect. I you know I've actually never thought of it like that before i mean it's possible but it's like hard for the polls to seem like competition maybe unless they translate to fights in the comments in which case i would be on board Mm. Uh, i've but i've never thought of it like that before it's mostly just just sheer curiosity um it does have the effect of like people have more attention on it but i don't think it really has to do with competing with each other i think that happens more in the comments yeah right right so did you just make a ton of money camming and then you just had financial security for a while and then you're kind of just living off of it? Or what's your main source of income now? Um, right now, mainly savings um, cool. and crypto. <laughs> I right worked with that crypto startup that did an ICO, which was very nice. Oh, awesome. Um, Good, for yeah. Good for you. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. So what's that? Yeah, I know that you're, you've are you recently launched a card game. We're definitely yeah. going to talk about that. There's a link to, the, to that in the description below. I have some questions about that, and we'll talk about that. In fact, sure. I've, I've even peppered into my questions that I've prepared, uh, some questions that I've stolen from your, your game. Oh, no. I thought it was only fair. It's only fair, right? If you make a game that is literally about uh, encouraging people to ask others the most awkward questions possible, I figured okay. it, it's, just, it's fair play for me to pepper some into the conversation. So I'm, I'm ready. I'll, I'll, I'll do that uh, randomly. In, in a surprise way. So, okay. Very cool. Very cool. So what, something that I was also kind of curious about is because I did watch or read some of the stuff that you put out before this and on YouTube in particular, there's, a, there's not much of you, but there, there are some things. And uh, I actually thought uh, they had relatively low views. I thought they were actually quite 
quite interesting to watch. Uh, maybe deserves they both I think deserve more views. The there was one clip about camming where you talk about that, and then there's another one where you're literally tripping on acid. And I thought it was I thought the I thought the acid the little acid movie was really quite artful, and and I I really quite liked it. I was surprised that it only had a few thousand views, so people should check that out. I thought it was I thought it was quite cute and cool. Yeah. Um, it's more viewed on Vimeo. There's a version uploaded there. Oh, okay, right on, right on. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you, you give, you give an impression in your interview on camming that perhaps the, it's, it's sort of, uh, the harm that comes from doing cam girl work is perhaps overestimated. Is that something that you think? Uh, I think it's likely, um, but it I mean, depends on what you mean by overestimated. Like, is it culturally induced? Yes. And in, in that sense, it's not really real. Um, I, I try and talk openly about the harms that do come with, with camming. Um, I think that a lot of the people's like perception of it is that is like a lot more emotionally problem. I'm using the word problematic than it is. Okay. So what is, what, what is the most difficult, painful, uh, harmful part of camming? Probably the lack of security. Um, the, the variation in income is so high and it's like very emotionally stressful. It was, I never got used to, it. I did five years, never got used to the fact that like one month I could be, Oh, like now I can, pay all these bills. And then the other month I'm like, well, nothing happened. Oh, so it's actually the financial volatility. That is yeah. the worst thing about it for me. Yeah. Um, like a lot of people don't like the, um, like emotional labor, um, that they have to do. I mostly stayed out of that aspect. Um, mm. but so a what, lot of people have no issue with the, the compliments. Most usually they don't get insulted. Usually that's like one of the common misconceptions. I see. Okay. That's interesting. So people overestimate the amount of, of insult that one receives. That's interesting. Yes. I never, I never heard financial volatility as a particular source of stress in camming. Uh, you would actually think that it's more stable. You think if you're good at it and you have a loyal audience, that it would be a relatively stable uh, income path, but I guess not. Well, there's a percentage of it that is stable, um, but most people get most of their income from one or two people, which is very not stable. Oh, right. Whales, right? Is that what they call yeah. them? Uh, I don't know if I, I don't know if you would have ever had any reason to come across this weird fact, but I actually tried camming once in, really? grad, in, grand, in grad school. Yeah, I had this really stupid idea where I thought that maybe I could just, I, was, I had to do a lot of studying in grad school, obviously reading and stuff like that. I had, I, so I'm like sitting in my room for long hours at a time. I had this kind of stupid idea that, what if I just try it? It's not that hard to get started. And I'll just have the camera on me. I'll be reading my books in my underwear. And I won't even pay that much attention to it. But if someone appears and they want to give me money to like take off my underwear, then I'll do it. But that's all I'm going to do pretty much. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and the way I thought about it was if it, if no one wants to pay me for this, well, I'm just reading my books anyway. It's what I would be doing anyway. Uh, but maybe someone will want to give me a lot of money. Yeah, I did. I, I swear to God, I tried it. I tried it many times. No, I did not catch a whale. I did not catch a whale. I did not catch a whale. Uh, I did not even catch a tadpole. Uh, I got zero money for it, but I did honestly try it and it was, it it was a relatively low cost experiment. I mean, just basically tried it. Yeah. I also did try rent boy one time. That's a whole nother story. Uh, but I did make, I did make $600 on rent boy. I'm not kidding. Uh, I, I made a clear commitment to myself and my girlfriend at the time, not my now wife. Uh, I said, I'm never going to do anything sexual, but maybe I could find some weird guy who just like wants something weird that is not sexual. Has some weird fetish that I can satisfy without actually doing anything sexual, and I actually did get one. Um, I got a guy to pay me 
Well, he took me out to dinner, first of all. I had a nice, like, steak dinner, too. It was, it was dope. And then, Philly? Uh, yeah, Philly, yeah. And I gave him a fake name and everything. And uh, he was an older man, not very, you know, well, he was a nice guy, older man. Um, and the way it basically ended out, it's a long story, but the way it basically ended was we ended up going into his hotel room upstairs. And <laughs> no, and I, I don't want to laugh because it's actually, it was actually a fairly touching experience. Uh, I basically, we, we negotiated a bit and I basically, we lied down on the bed and I, I hugged him for about 45 minutes. Like I just put, we were kind of like, I was the, I was the big spoon. Yeah. He was like, I just put, I basically just put my arm around his waist mm. uh, for like 45 minutes. And we just lied there in silence and that was it. And uh, I left the hotel that night with $600 in cash. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, That's a really nice story. It was, it was, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely strange. It was definitely, uh, I had some weird psychological, emotional dynamics going on, but nothing particularly bad. I mean, it just, it was weird for sure. But, um, I did kind of feel like I was just helping a guy and just kind of giving him some, giving him some brotherly love. So I, so I thought about it to myself, you know, um, and 600 bucks for less than an hour and a nice paid for steak dinner. You can't beat that. Yeah. So I, that was my one only experience with Renpoi, and uh, I would say it was a winning, it was a winning experience. Yeah, that sounds really good. Anyway, I would do that. Enough about me. If anybody wants to pay me six hundred dollars an hour to hug them, I, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Enough about me, uh, Dad. I hope you're not listening to this. Um, <laughs> uh, but hey, I was young, trying things out. So okay. So uh, <clears throat> one thing I wanted to ask you is. Since you do all these damn Twitter polls, personally, I'm not one for polls. No disrespect. I don't mind you doing them. I think it's an interesting thing to do. Um, whenever I see someone put out a poll, I never respond to it out of principle because I feel like, oh, really? well, yeah. And it's no disrespect or anything. It's just more when I see it, I think this person doesn't really care about the answer to this question. They just want my attention and they want me to feed into their game. And I feel like if I answer their Twitter poll, I'm acknowledging them as like more powerful to me. I know this is re- stu- super stupid, but that's how I think about it. And I'm like, I'm not wasting my time on your poll. You don't really want the answer. You just want attention and you just want votes. Um, I'm not accusing you of that. What I was going to ask you, that's just my stupid way that I see it. What I was going to ask you is just from doing all of these polls, you must have this massive ethnographic database now of, of, of attitudes. Of course, it's not a representative sample, but it's still a sample. Uh, what I'm curious, like, what have you learned? What are the big things you've learned from all of these polls? Um, occasionally I get polls that surprise me. I've gotten pretty good at predicting what people are going to respond by this point. Um, but people are more pro, uh, pain than I would expect. So there's a couple of polls around, like, would you, um, shit, what was it? Oh yeah. Would you experience like unconditional love for all of humanity if you could? And, and in my mind, it's like, obviously, yes, <laughs> obviously 98% of the people are going to say yes to this, but no, I think the majority said no. Very weird. Um, Huh. Uh, but usually I'm not that surprised at this point. That's interesting. I mean, I can kind of rep the somewhat anti-rationalist kind of uh, Catholic love of pain and suffering in this conversation. I, I have some sympathy for that kind of attitude. And I can imagine, I mean, I think one defensible way to understand that type of response that I do think is sensible and even rational to some degree is that you you don't really get all the good unless you have some bad to give it yeah. meaning. I think that's kind of like a logical a, a logical reality. So some people might be thinking that, right? If everyone just feels nothing but love for everyone else unconditionally, isn't that really kind of the evacuation of love in some sense? Uh, 
Well, I, we're conflating, I think, love and pain here a bit. I think that it's possible to be in extreme pain when loving someone. Mm. I think love does not always feel pleasurable. Mm. True. That's for sure. Okay. Interesting. So anything else? That I have learned. Yeah. Um, I am always surprised by people predicting that I'm going to agree with them. Uh, so I often ask, like, do you think I support X? Do you support X? And then usually it's like people think that I think what they think. That's that's always surprising to me. Like, you should have figured it out by this point that I probably don't agree with you. <laughs> mm. it's, it's amusing. So Okay, so then what that means to me is that there's something systematic in perceptions about you that is incorrect. Mm-hmm. What What is it about Ayla that the world misunderstands? If there's a core dimension, is there an underlying dimension that explains that variation? I, th- I think it's going to be difficult for anybody to fully understand what it's like to do a massive amount of acid unless they have done it. Um, that's probably like the biggest divide where I feel like not really there's a connection there, but people are usually pretty good at getting most of it. At least there's a niche of people somewhere. So like the libertarian thing, like there's always going to be someone who understands that um, or like the sex worker thing. Like I follow a bunch of sex, pro sex worker stuff on Twitter and then I feel pretty solidarity in that. Do you think that your your background in Christian fundamentalism has carried through in any meaningful way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, like, I suspect this would be the same for anybody who's, like, been part of a very, very strong belief system that's weird and then leaves it. Because, like, having the experience of, of changing your whole framework about reality quite strongly is... I think very formative. And for me, it led to like a lot of distrust. I was like, okay, if I can have believed something so much and like experienced Jesus and, you know, witness miracles, like all of this stuff that seemed to be very strong evidence for this framework and have it be not true. That's just like, oh, that just eliminates a whole lot of other shit that people say, you know, it's a very strong skepticism in that regard. But I think that's pretty common. So how old were you when you exited <coughs> Christian fundamentalism? I lost my faith uh, shortly before turning 19. Oh, 19. Okay. So yeah. really late. And until then, you had a quite sincere personal conviction? Yeah. Yeah. I was 100% in. Wow. And so what made you leave it? Um, well, it was like uh, realizing how much effort I had been putting into believing. So like I was raised with like a very rational type faith. My dad's a professional evangelical who goes around debating atheists. And like we were taught, you know, like the arguments for, you know, theology. And we I memorized like 800 verses, but over the course of my childhood sort of feel. And uh, so like I knew how everything works, you know, and all of like whenever I would hear an argument against Christianity, I knew the answer for it. Like, oh, well, you just don't understand the context or, you know, you need to read the original Greek or actually that's not a contradiction because of X, Y, Z. And so this was like kind of the response for all of these uh, objections, um, which felt like sustainable. I was like, okay, I have reason to support what I'm believing. Um, But when I lost my faith, it was like a first split second. I was able to step outside and see how much effort went into answering these objections. Like we had to kind of like, twist or reasoning just a tiny bit which is like we do that all the time in small amounts and we consider that totally normal but it was just the accumulation of how much like eh, like okay all right okay if we just if we just twist this here all right now we've got a functioning belief system voila you know and then once i realized i've been doing that i was like oh well i'm what am i trying to do here i'm trying to make it work like it's hard yeah yeah 
Fascinating. And were you experimenting with acid and things like that before this at all? Or no. So those th- that had no role in this? No, not at all. I lost my faith right before 2019 and I tried acid for the first time when I was 23, I think. And did you go to college? Um, for three months, but I was too poor and they kicked me out. Right on. And you were homeschooled, right? Yeah. So you're homeschooled, went to college for a little bit, but it wasn't for you. So pretty much your whole life, you've kind of been jumping from kind of strange space to strange space. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. And and it's not for lack of trying to not be in a strange place. I've, I consider my like current position as like a weird in the cracks kind of person to not be voluntary because like growing up, I was fed a very standard idea for what I was capable of and what I was supposed to be doing. Like I was supposed to be a housewife, you know, people, they told me I would go to college to basically meet a husband was like explicitly fed to us. And I remember once I brought up to my mom, like, mom, like, what if I don't want kids? And she like freaked out. She was not happy with that. She thought I was extremely selfish. So this is like the kind of world. Um, And then once I lost my faith and got out into the world, it's like, there was no idea what I should be doing and no education. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to find a minimum wage job and work that for the rest of my life. That's what I thought. That's what I like thought my capacity was and where my role was to be just like a basic, like I'm going to move this gear over to this other place repeatedly. Um, So it was only like repeatedly failing at (laughs) actually sticking with society that I ended up um, where I am today. But that can be a blessing, right? Do you feel like in retrospect, uh, you know, it's really worked out well for you, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm so thankful that I got kicked out of college and that I got like, I had one job I was fired from. So thankful for that. All right. That's a lesson for you kids out there. You know, (laughs) you you might be getting rejected from some normal institution, but it might just be a blessing in disguise. It might, it might mean that you're in a way too good, too interesting for them. And your life's going to turn out better if you embrace it. That's cool. Don't go to college. <laughs> job are, out, your, your job. are your parents happy with how you've turned out as an adult? No. I mean, they think uh, I'm going to burn in hell for eternity, which is like very sad. Uh, um, I, I think that was like the one thing they wanted. They just wanted me to remain Christian and they didn't really care what else I did. But so. Or do you still talk or? Yeah, I, I talk with my mom mainly. I'm not so much with my dad. He's kind of a jerk. Um, but my mom, my mom likes to pretend everything's fine and we don't bring up any of the, uh, inappropriate things I have done. Sure. 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 Interesting. So do you, were how, how kidding were you versus how serious were you when you said a few moments ago? Yeah. Kids drop out of college. You know, do, do you, th- do you think the the more serious way to put that is, do you think, do you think that too many people are kind of forcing themselves to try to live up to sort of normal institutions and you think there probably should be in, in a more optimal equilibrium in society, there would be far more people like you or even like me in a very, very different kind of way, basically just accepting that they don't fit into some institution and just embarking on some sort of wild undomesticated path. I mean, yes, (laughs) very obviously. Yes. I don't know exactly what, what proportion should be, but it seems like very obvious that right now we just don't have other options for kids. Mm. Well, as someone who has done this yourself in, you know, uh, a few different ways and how old are you now? 28, almost 28. Okay, cool. I mean, I know that people who watch this channel, uh, there are a lot of people who in their, in their early twenties, even I think some late teens, um, I'm curious 
for for people who see themselves as this type of person who kind of just feel like the normal institutions aren't they just don't fit uh but you know they're dealing with pressure from their parents or just pressure from social perceptions or whatever in your experience of doing all these different things do any particular rules of thumb or lessons stand out to you about how to do it uh both effectively but also with some amount of confidence and emotional stability um i think i was probably very lucky i'm i'm not really sure how much of this is genetic or my being slightly autistic or something um but i think it was probably the homeschooling where i wasn't exposed to this weird culture of like social pressure from other kids and so there's something that's like deviating or disagreeing with society is like not scary for me at all and having people like push back against me i don't experience that as really a negative thing um so and i think that's like really important for my ability to do this uh for and have like emotional health like there's not really any rules built into the world in my brain in some way um and i think if if you already think that way then it's likely that it will be more easy for you to but a lot of people don't really have the freedom to try and take risks like that like like you said you know society pressure or family or monetary like often if you're relying on your family for giving you money to do things drop out of college so you, you don't need them to pay for college don't do that but uh, so you're that. you're a big proponent of don't go to college i guess <laughs> well for most people i mean i i think some people like it because it's a structure and if you do well with structure, I don't know, and then you have like a very clear, easy path, then go for it. But if not, then, you know, f- fuck, fuck it. Uh, you're a good writer. Did you have good homeschooling in writing or do you think that that's just basically genetic? You're you're smart and gifted verbally. Probably genetic. Um, I, I've always been obsessed with reading books. I would read like a novel a day for maybe, maybe over a thousand books as a kid. Oh, right on. So, right on. so I think that really led to it. Okay, now here's the really big question, though. If you had to fuck a cow, would it be dead or alive? Dead. <laughs> dead. dead. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I did kind of think about this for a little bit. And I don't know, I might go with alive. I feel like I have a little oh. bit of a relationship with it. Like, I feel like, I don't know. <laughs> be, careful, be careful with the bestiality talk there. <laughs> well, yeah, but here's the, here's the way I think about it. It's like, it's bestiality either way. But if you do it while the cow is dead it's bestiality plus necrophilia necrophilia. so i guess if you're going for like you just want to maximize outrage then that's the better one but um well yeah i guess if you do when they're alive it's bestiality and rape i guess unless you know you really develop rapport with the cow and you can kind of make a case Uh that body language was asking for it or something which is where the like not having to explicitly verbally consent to sex comes from Right. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. I saw a tweet. I saw a pretty edgy tweet you put out the other day that said, uh, you feel like men should not ask for explicit consent. Well, technically I said, I find it more arousing when they don't that that's technically what I said. I did not say they about should. Okay. okay. <laughs> so when you write, when, so th- this is probably the, the dimension on which you and I are most kind of tagged together on the internet or mentioned in the same sentence or whatever is, provocative tweets and i'm a little curious for you is it a, a totally natural thing where you're just basically thinking what you think and you're and you're writing tweets and uh people get you know kind of shocked at at them or whatever or have you have you kind of learned what pushes people's buttons and you kind of like it definitely I, I started out yeah yeah i started out not really 
like I said, not very aware of why people were reacting weird, but then I, you know, I figured it out. And like, I know people don't like thinking about kids having sex or animals having sex or like weird stuff around slavery and consent. I don't know. There's like a whole spectrum of things where people like get uh, upset. And those are right. Weird about slavery. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That was a big deal. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) Excuse me. All right. No worries. I mean, have you found this? Is it deliberate on your part? At this point, yeah, it's become pretty deliberate. <laughs> it's just fun at this point. Um, I mean, I guess I guess we have a similar psychology in that regard. I also, uh, I guess I'm genu- I'm generally and personally relatively uh, invulnerable to social perception and pressure. Like knowing that a bun- knowing that a few hundred or a few thousand random people in the world like think something I said is naughty pretty much means nothing to me. It just has no effect on my feelings or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and people do have very different temperaments in this regard. Some people just that thought that a hundred people are disliking them feels like explosively painful and, and anxious. I don't have that at all. I, I, I so I, there's really no negative uh, cost to me at all. If I say something that large numbers of people don't like other than family who like, don't see this, like I see it. And I do love my family and I do, respect them. And I do give that a certain amount of, uh, you know, a, a, I give that it's due weight. Um, so at first it was kind of like pretty natural organic, but then once I started to see, I think what people don't realize is that when you go through this rodeo once or twice of having a, like a negative viral tweet, you learn so much about the, how the herd functions. You learn, you learn about what sets people off and then you see really interesting patterns that you really wouldn't know about unless you go through this rodeo. Like w- one thing that's always struck me is that when it happens, the half of the viral negative attention is uh, some kind of misunderstanding. It's, it's just a logical misunderstanding of what mm-hmm. I actually said, but it's, it's so statistically clear in the data of all the incoming uh, responses that, that it, it really kind of like uncovers certain sort of like unconscious mistakes or unconscious kind of logical and emotional tendencies. And I always find that very interesting and actually analytically rewarding, you know? So like when you, when you can craft that negative viral tweet and, and get a whole bunch of people upset, you learn this kind of like hidden, the hidden contours of, of how the kind of system one normal kind of like human monkey brain works because it, it comes out in, in regularities that you can perceive in, in the negative onslaught. And I, I kind of like that. I just find it very illuminating to see. Uh, It's a really, it's a really cool learning experience. I think too, if you can ruffle the the feathers of, of the herd. So yeah, I've kind of like, and and then I started getting into the kind of the science of it, like thinking about it like a social scientist and thinking about, huh, can you actually reverse engineer? Like what is, what are the components of a, a kind of negative viral tweet? And yeah, so I've kind of just become uh, kind of fascinated by the whole puzzle. Have you figured you, it out? I I think I figured out a, f- a few rules of thumb. Do you have any rules of thumb? Uh, well, I mean, doing one where people can like easily misinterpret it is is a pretty good one because that way you have a very easy defense, and then other people will make that defense, and then you get the that interaction. Right. W- one thing that I have, I think I have observed that is a reliable thing that works is the actual flow of the sentences has to be 
uh, jarring. It has to be un- unexpected. It's kind mm. of like what, what Jonathan Haidt says about moral confounding, essentially. Like that, that's what I have found that my tweets that have done the best in terms of negative virality have essentially been Jonathan Haidt moral confounding statements. Um, where you basically, you started off thinking that you're going into, you thinking that the tweet is going to be about X and X is a good thing. And then the final part of it is actually, oh, this tweet is about Y and Y is a bad thing. And, and so, uh, it's that, it's that getting pulled into something good, feeling like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to retweet this or like this cause I support it. And then the, and then the, the final bit of it is like something you find atrocious that, <laughs> that I think is what really gets people. Um, so that's one, that's one thing. And then I think the other criteria is you want it to be, uh, like logically it, it should be, you should be innocent logically, but it just sounds like you're supporting something really evil. So it's like, if you, if you look at it closely, like I'm not supporting Jeffrey Epstein, I'm not, I'm not even getting down on Greta Thunberg. I'm not like, I'm not actually taking any position. It's just an, if then structure, it's a purely mm-hmm. if then structure. And whether you buy the premise or not is is not actually said in the tweet. It, that's left up to whether you want to buy the premise or not. Um, that I think tends to tends to work really well because what it can do is it can basically upset both sides of the debate or both sides of the political spectrum. And I think for for you to really get that negative vira- virality, you need something that where your position on it is ambiguous, but both sides could can can reasonably infer that you're thinking the bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Scissor statements. Yeah. Do you have any uh, insights into, into the logic of uh, viral tweets? No, that's probably not more than yours. I think I probably put less thought into it. Um, it's only been maybe the last two months that I've had a couple tweets go like bad viral. Um, and so I'm still kind of adjusting to figuring out this is something I even want to try to uh, encourage. Um, but I am particularly fond of tweets that um, pit like the same ideology against itself, which is, I think, very similar, if not the same thing that you were saying. Um, like, uh, like one classic example is saying like black people can't call more. Um, and then you upset people who are very liberal. And then you say, well, this is like uh, you being upset about this is, in fact, an offense against black culture where this is considered like normal and really welcome. And you're trying to like put your white morality onto this culture, like whitewash it. Right. And so it's like there's like two different arguments that kind of come together. I love those. Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good example. Yeah. So, OK, what is your favorite dose of LSD? The amount, I mean, like what is the best? amount? <laughs> Depends on how much i've been doing lately if i've been doing it like regularly then probably 250 let's say for someone who doesn't do it uh generally like what what for the average obvious and we're not doctors folks this is not medicinal advice it's not advice at all okay but take it for what you want um for someone who maybe doesn't do a lot of drugs but wants a proper lsd experience what do you think is the best dose to have the optimal impact Man, I was tr- I was really trying to build a calculator for a while. I was like trying to come up with like the correct calculation where you input the thing and it gives you. Oh, those. that'd be cool. Uh, but I forgot uh, that I was doing that. Uh, but it really depends on a lot of things. If you've already done psychedelics before, like shrooms and ayahuasca or whatever, and you had a good experience, you could probably bump up your LSD dose. If you haven't done any uh, psychedelics whatsoever, probably start pretty low. I'm much more conservative on my recommendations nowadays than I used to be. 
Um, if you've never done it before and start with like maybe 50 micrograms and then like work up on 25 microgram increments. Um, if you have tried uh, psychedelics before, then maybe do something like 100 to 125. And so for people who don't have such fine grained control over it, one tab, <coughs> do you think, do you Sorry. think one tab generally, if you, if, if someone's giving you a choice of like one tab or two tabs, or, you know, if that's, if that's what you're dealing with. Uh, well, I mean, tabs vary a lot. I think common tabs are between like 100 to 125, but I have seen 300 microgram tabs and 50 microgram tabs. So, I mean, if they're like the standard dosing, then probably if you've tried psychedelics before, I would take a tab. Or if you're like feeling extremely confident and positive in your scenario, like you're around friends who you trust and you feel really at peace, um, then try like a full tab, maybe even more than that if you are crazy. Um, but if not, then I would go with half a tab. Ah, okay. Nice. Is yeah. this fit with your... Done it a few times, but I never did any kind of like <laughs> really epic dose. Just like I think I did one tab once, or I, then I did one tab a second time. So like two, and it was like a proper trip. It was it was cool for nice. sure. But um, a little too taxing, a little too taxing on the, on the body. I think yeah. um, I enjoyed it. It was awesome. It was really awesome. But I don't know, I'm kind of getting older. Now I'm kind of like... Yeah, maybe I don't need heavy heavy drugs anymore. I, I'm a big fan of microdosing, though. I think microdosing. Yeah. L- I think microdosing LSD is basically one of the most amazing positive drug effects or drug uses I've ever had, and it seems to have almost no negative side effects, and it's amazing. Do you track like uh, like mood or daisy dose stuff like that? No, not really. Mm-hmm. No, but uh. I've had very good experiences microdosing, really enjoy that. And I see no real negative side effects. I did enjoy the few times that I had a proper trip, but it's intense on the body. It's like the, you know, the mm-hmm. ne- like the, the come down and like even the next day, you're kind of like, you feel like you ran a marathon or something. No, you didn't go anywhere. Yeah. I had this one trip where I it was like quite a strong dose. I don't remember. It's like two to 300 micrograms, something like that. And, and I was about an hour in when I just got hit with the flu. And I was, uh, and it's like very confusing because like, you're like, is this in my body? Is this part of the acid? Is it not? Like, am I dying? Always a very important possibility. Um, it was not very fun. I just ended up like throwing up. You ever mess with ketamine? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think that's pretty dope. I only tried that one time, actually not that long ago. Uh, I thought it was pretty amazing, honestly. I kind of, I kind of get the hype. I think I'm on the ketamine hype train. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad it works for you. I I'm personally don't get a lot out of it, but. Oh yeah. It was weird, but I thought it was like very relatively peaceful and not as, not as crazy as, as LSD. And I liked that about That's, it. That does also, seem true. what's crazy about ketamine is you can do as much as you want. I couldn't believe this when when the person who was helping, who was hooking me up, I was doing it with her and, and, uh, she kept saying like, yeah, you want some more, you want some more. I was like, shouldn't we go slow? I don't, I don't want to get. Like, am I going to get fucked up? Am I going to have a hangover? Pretty much. And I was high at this point. I was like pretty high at this point. And I remember the moment when she was like, no, you can do as much as you want. And there are no negative side effects. And I had this like crazy Eureka moment where I was like, no way. That's like, that's not possible. Are you serious? I was like, are you serious? I was like, how is that possible? A drug that you can do. That's awesome. That you can do basically as much as you want. That can't be possible. And I just remember being really freaked out in that moment. Like, this is a glitch in the matrix. This can't be, that can't be, that can't be true, but that's what she said. <laughs> and this folks, kids, this is not advice. I don't know if that's true. That's just what some girl told me. It's just, what, just what some girl told me. I, I it could be wrong. Don't, don't ever 
make life decisions based on what I tell you. I'm just giving you my experiences. Yeah. So interesting. Um, what else? So uh, I had a few notes. I try to go pretty much off the cuff, but I try to have a few things just in case. Um, we should talk a little bit about your game that you recently launched. Your oh, yeah. This is, uh, as far as I can tell, your kind of most recent big venture. And uh, it's interesting. So the idea, as I understand it, is pretty simple. The game is called Askhole, and it's pretty much a, a deck of cards in this kind of genre that I think has become popular with cards against humanity and these types of party games. It's, yeah. a, it's a similar concept, right? It's basically just a collection of nicely printed cards that are colorful and ask and basically give you prompts to uh, ask your friends uh, very difficult, weird questions at parties. Is that the idea? Yeah, basically. I mean, I didn't even originally intend for it to be a game. It's mostly just people kept asking me, how do you play when I would like bring out the cards? Just always, mm-hmm. how do we play this? And I'm like, no, it's just a deck of questions. Like figure it, I don't know. Like it's help use it. I don't know. Um, but because there was so much interest in like having a set of rules for it, then we like up with some rules for it. So I guess you so. Were just, you were just doing this naturally for fun in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Right so on. I would go around to parties and, and as the aforementioned, uh, probable autism i would be like okay i am at a party why am i here i'm here to talk to people why do i want to talk to people i want to have a conversation uh that is novel i think and so i would go up to somebody and then we'd start talking and they'd be like how's your day and i'm like uh, i don't want to i don't want to talk about how my day was like let's ha- let's like generate something and anyway i was like very um kind of awkward about it so i ended up uh, writing down a bunch of questions on paper and I would just bring them around and then I would go up to people and ask them I would like do it's like survey data at parties where I would go around and, like ask everybody the same question and then record their answers and then ask their prediction about other people's answers to the same question it was just mostly it was me and, and parties and data and questions um, and then eventually people started asking me like where can I, I buy a deck of these I would like I'd like to have these for myself um, and then after enough people said that I was like okay probably there's a product here a lot of people would buy it um, so then I got my fantastic uh, co-founder, Rosgar, um, and we together have made the company and it's been going great. That's really cool. I, I want to hear a little bit more about what goes into this type of product. It's kind of an interesting uh, category. Like how, how do you even, how did you manufacture it? How do you go about getting a manufacturer to make you a nice deck of cards? Yeah. I mean, mostly we didn't really know what we were doing. We found, we use um, my playing cards, I think. Um, because you can order smaller deck sizes from them or like smaller batches because we wanted to iterate. So we only ordered a hundred and then used them and then took a whole bunch of feedback and then iterated and we're on our third iteration of product right now, which seems to be good. Seems to be no more serious complaints with the way the product is structured. Um, and how, how do you do the packaging and shipping workflow? Is that all outsourced or how does it work? Yeah. Um, so originally I was doing it in my bedroom along with Rothgar we were just like physically putting the product into the packaging and like I had handwritten notes for the first round um, but it's like it's really time consuming and it would take a while and so we have it outsourced now to a company that we just ship the product directly to them and then they take the orders and fulfill everything and it's so much better thank god and I'm I'm, I'm a little curious about the actual nitty-gritty of this because a lot of people I think in my audience are doing different types of creative mm-hmm. ventures on the on the internet that are somewhat you know uh economically driven so was it difficult to find first of all i guess people to you need a company that to actually produce the cards 
that look nice. And then you need also to, to have the shipping and the packaging done. Was it hard to find these people and get that arranged or was it relatively simple? It, I don't actually remember how we found the packaging company, but we use the one that uses that cards against humanity made. We use black box um, for the shipping and they've been very good. I, I, maybe we Googled for it. I don't remember, but the first, the getting the manufacturer, we just basically Googled manufacturer playing cards because there's a lot of companies that do. Um, and I, I had already tried this before when I was a cam girl, I designed and made a deck of cam girl game cards to play on cam at one point. So I, I think I had actually used the same company. So I already had like a little bit of familiarity with the landscape, um, hmm. but just basically Google. Google make card yeah. order plots, you know? Yeah. And were you pleased with the process? Was it harder than you thought or easier than you thought or what? Um, it wasn't that bad. Really like uh, the company part was harder. So they have to like register the company more in California and like get a PO box. I hate that shit. Yeah. That was worse. Yeah. Bureaucracy, man. Fuck the system. Uh, do you, uh, <laughs> are you, are you too open with your financials? Like, could I ask what kind of revenue you're doing? And not, not a, I actually don't know exactly how much money we've made. I think we've sold around a thousand decks. Um, and it's like, okay, it depends on like what we have varying profit depending on where we're shipping to and like which sort of thing you ordered from. So cool, cool. And so is this just a little side project for you or do you see yourself going deeper and deeper into the product game? I would like to go deeper. I am extremely lazy. This is a big, big issue here. So if I can figure out how to become a productive, normal human being, then yeah, we're going forward all the way. But right now I've been taking it like really slow, not pushing myself, doing a little bit of work here and there. Interesting that you say you're lazy. You definitely give the impression of someone who's very productive and creative. That's great. That's wonderful. (laughs) I mean, you have a long track record of of writing interesting things, doing interesting things. And you seem to, you know, when you put your mind to something, it seems like you follow through on it. So yeah, you don't seem like lazy. Thanks. I I'm glad that the image of me is not a lazy one. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm super, I do not get a lot done every day. I think if you have money, then laziness is a virtue. I mean, good for you. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's how I, that's how I think about it. Anyway. I mean, we like to valorize productivity and definitely it's good to be productive. Uh, if that, if you have goals, right. If you're working on something that is meaningful, then yeah, sure. Get after it, work hard and that and good for you. And that's admirable, but like enjoying life is good too. And, and if you have money, then just being a cool, relaxed person who's, who's good to their friends and is in a happy mood on a daily basis and has that kind of extra buffer of, mental and emotional resources just to be cool to people, to be nice to people, to support people and have free time for people. I mean, that's like, a, that's, that's noble, you know? So I think if you have, if you're paying your bills and you have the money, then um, yeah. laziness is cool. Yeah. I mostly just be like, what do I want to do today? What do I feel like doing today? And usually the answer is team fortress too. Um, or like bad tweets. Is that, is that a video game? Yeah. Right on. Uh, do rationalist houses like play a lot of video games? No, 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 they try it. They try. They're much more into the being productive and saving the world thing than I am. If you don't mind me asking, do you still not want to have kids? I am interested in having kids. I, I'm not sure if I actually want kids or if I just, everybody's told me that I will want kids so much that I've just like internalized it. Mm. I have no idea, but I, I, I want to be in a position where I can have kids if I want to. Sure. Yeah, for sure. What did you say a moment ago about rational about the rationalist people you live with there? They're all off doing super productive things, trying to save the world. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, this is one of the things maybe we deviate and that there seems to be some sort of ambient moral pressure to be doing good in the world, which I do not have. I am happy doing zero good if I so feel like it. Um, but a lot of them are like, how do we better like program this thing that will help people or AI? A lot of, lot of AI talk. Right. Yeah. Ben is asking if they're effective altruists. Generally, yes. Right. That's a very tightly overlapping oh very overlapping yeah some of some of them here are into it um some aren't right yeah i'm kind of more with you on this one uh i'm i mean in many ways i'm a rationalist but in many ways i'm not and uh i think the whole hyper productivity narratives that get wrapped around existential risks is kind of a i mean i i get it and it's smart and it's interesting and i i certainly wouldn't dismiss it out of hand but personally i'm like "Mm, yeah probably not I mean, I think it's just really easy to, for people who are really smart and brainy, it's really easy to cook up some kind of moral narrative in which your intelligence is also really, really important and mm-hmm. ethically. And, and I think the, the, hit, the track record of humans pretty much coming up with rather fantastical kind of background casings for what is essentially just a kind of intellectual fatuation is uh, such a long and storied history. I think we're very, very, very good at creating epic moral uh, backgrounds for our for what is essentially just uh, interest in intellectual work. Uh, that I kind of don't trust it when I see it. Generally, personally, so I yeah, mean, I, yeah. I, I do think that there's a lot of um, like. So, so I'm definitely like. Uh, psycho, psycho, psychoanalyzing uh, outside of my week here, so uh, do not take this too seriously. Mm. Um, but I suspect that at least some portion of this moral drive um, comes from like the sense of like dissatisfaction with themselves. Like, mm. like I need to figure out what set of actions I can do that will finally make me a good person. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's often that's often true. I've definitely known people like that. I mean, I definitely have a, something of a kind of hi- hyper productivity narrative and, and I, I, I am the kind of somewhat typical ambitious man in that regard. Like I do try to work as hard as I can and probably obsessively and, and to a fault. But for me, I don't, I never really have convinced myself that it's because I need to save the world or I'm going to save mm-hmm. the world, or there's some sort of like real ethical moral necessity for me to work on some particular problem and failure to do that is is like neglecting this this most crucial research agenda. Like I, I think you can be very productive if you want to, but I I tend to think that you should you should probably acknowledge that the ultimate driver of that is your temperament and your own yeah kind of what you said, Ayla, like that it's it's essentially you're scratching an itch that's essentially inside of you. Mm-hmm. But be that as it may, does that get does this cause problems for you in your social groups in in the rational? Yeah. I mean, I like the rest of them so much. I, I know I shit on the rationalist community because like, they do have issues. Um, but like every time I leave, I'm like, ah, the outside world is like not good. It's just because they're so good at thinking here. You know, n- not that they don't have their issues or, you know, or have moral standards that come out of, you know, personal flaws. But just they're so reasonable. And you can not, you can say anything, any thought, and they will genuinely engage with it. And so... I don't remember where I was going with that. I love yeah, it. no, it's okay. Is it is it weird or difficult being, if you don't mind me saying, I don't mean anything by this, but you know, like a an, an attractive girl, hot girl, whatever, in a community that's not exactly known for having a lot of hot girls. 
for anything weird. Um, I, I, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I experience like dynamics if I go to a party where I, like it, I can feel it. Like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going somewhere, but like, there's something about your appearance that like has an impact on other people. Um, but usually it's pretty good, mainly because most people in the community are not great at pursuing women. Mm. Um, right. Which, which is good, but they tend to be very, you know, straightforward about it. So, I mean, sometimes I have people be like, just like no bleed up whatsoever. They send me a message like, date? And I'm like, okay, thank, thank you for asking. Probably not, but I appreciate it. And, and I, I like that sort of attitude. Oh, okay. Interesting. So what, what type of style do you like in this, in this context? What, what, what do you generally respond positively to? Straightforwardness. But the person who DMs you date question mark too straightforward. <laughs> well, I mean, usually they will say slightly more words than that. Um, but no, I, I have no issue with that. I like that. And I, I respect it because it's like the thing that I really hate are people who don't ask, but like kind of are putting them in the position where they're like hoping that I pick up that they're trying to kind of ask me. I hate that shit more than anything else. And I understand why they do it. But like for me personally, it's like, don't make me have to do this weird guessing game. And then and then sometimes I directly approach it. I'm like, are you interested in me? Like, because if so, I don't want to do anything and they're like oh no 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 they deny it i'm like i hate the plausible deniability just come out be like hey i'm interested in you and then if they do that we address it and it's fine and then we move on Hmm. Hmm. very interesting so all right so you think you might go into more kind of product design type projects i'm curious like do you have do you have any ideas on 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 the on the back burner that you might be uh working on next like what what's next for ayla um book <laughs> book oh, cool. <laughs> if i can oh, do it so tell me about it oh is this you're doing enlightenment research is this what you're yeah. referring to oh yeah um, great. i mean so, it would be at least partially about that i, I doubt the entire book would be great so t- i'd love to hear more about it if you want to tell us yeah um so mainly i started out just doing long form uh, about an hour each 45 minutes interviews with people who claim to be enlightened and then i like as i did that i developed a set of questions um I have Asperger's. I'm looking at the chat. I probably have Asperger's. I haven't been diagnosed. Anyway. Um, yeah. So I started, I did a whole bunch of interviews. And then after that, I did a, a large survey, which has turned out to not really tell me that much. Um, but basically mapping out like the variety of experiences that people are talking about when they say the word enlightened or awakened or stream entry or whatever. Um, and so now I have like a list of different like bins that I'm trying to put people in. Interesting. I've met exactly one person in my life who said that they're enlightened. That they, that they claim to be enlightened or you consider them to be enlightened? No, they claim to be enlightened. I've only ever met one person who self-defined themselves as an enlightened person, an officially enlightened person from uh, meditating like a whole lot over hmm. like, 20 years or whatever. And honestly, the dude is pretty based. I kind of believe him. <laughs> uh, Wait, I have I, an embarrassing I'll, question, yeah. which is what, what does the word based mean? Oh, well, I guess I have my own usage of it. Uh, I mean, the the essential definition is associated with Lil B, the based god. He's a rapper. He he really put this word on the map. He put this word on the map. So if if you're interested in the original provenance, then the definition of based would be pretty much like grounded, humble, right? Based, okay. 
based as in feet on the base, feet on the ground. Uh, you know, you you know what's important, and you're you're humble and and grounded. Okay, cool. And then it then it gets a bit co opted by some right wing people. Um, they have this opposition in kind of the frog Twitter right wing internet land. They will they will talk about this distinction between uh, blue pilled and cringe on the one hand, and based and red pilled on the other hand. And uh, so, so it gets kind of co-opted a little bit in this kind of slightly right wing kind of ideological tenor. Uh-huh. And then I kind of, I'm not a right winger, but I, I'm like, a, I'm just on certain dimensions. I'm more right wing than the typical like public vocal leftist at this moment. So because I'm somewhat right wing on some of those dimensions as a general leftist, I kind of, I took up this term based uh, to kind of be a combination of Lil B, the base God and frog Twitter. Uh, so to me, when I say it, it pretty much means like just humble based, uh, grounded down to earth, real yeah. honest to me on it kind of, if there's one synonym synonym for it, it's kind of like uh, just wildly honest, kind of recklessly. Okay. It's like recklessly honest. Um, to me, that is a kind of being radically down to earth and grounded and humble, but also it's like um, intrinsically edgy, right? So that's going to be kind of intrinsically kind of like inconsist- inconsistent with uh, kind of like I got normal kind of institutional norms and political correctness and all that. Okay. So that's a bit of a long-winded def- uh, explanation of base, but there you have it. Cool. I, I don't remember what, what you used the word to describe now. So. Yeah, sorry. What did I even? Do you remember what I asked her? Oh yeah, we we're talking about enlightened people. Oh yeah, and I was just saying right. the, the dude yeah. I met. Actually, I can shout him out. Um, he's on Twitter. His name's the JMO. Uh, a real cool dude in England. In fact, he'd probably do an interview with you if you wanted. Yeah. Um, if are you still taking people? He's cool. He's real cool. He's um an interesting dude in England. Uh, I hung out with him a couple times. Uh, he's like a very interesting, smart, educated kind of hacker type guy. He made money, I think on crypto also. And now is just kind of like doing some, doing his own thing. Very independent, cool dude. But anyway, I met him and, uh, he told me straight up that he's official, that he's legit enlightened, uh, from just a very, very long time of meditating. And honestly, I really enjoyed talking with him. I thought he was really cool and smart and I liked him. And so I was kind of inclined to believe him. <laughs> I thought, I, you know, oh. believe him. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it means to be enlightened at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me neither. What do you, but based on your current research, what, what, what's going on with this? What, what is the ALA theory of what are these people really saying? Uh, what does it mean to be enlightened? Well, I can list you the, the bins I've got developed Please. right now, if you're interested. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying they're perfect. This is like kind of a rough sense of me trying to guess like what the clusters seem to be. Um, but so the first one's material and enlightenment. I've got names uh, for them, which may change. We have material enlightenment, which are, are usually people who report very uh, non-spiritual awakenings. So the sense of like realizing that you're just like a meme gene factory, usually quote a sense of like large space, like the universe is big and I am small, um, feeling like uh, like uh, you really get your place in evolution sort of thing. So this is, uh, and this is very profound for people. So I consider this material enlightenment and there's skill-based enlightenment. So the people for whom their primary thing that they report are things that they've learned that they can do with their brain. So like slowing down time or like changing their heartbeat or like experiencing like 
concentration in this fingertip for three hours, stuff like that. So it's basically like training your brain to do a lot of crazy stuff. Um, and then there is uh, mental health enlightenment. So a lot of people consider their enlightenment to have like figured out how to live life in a way that's extremely fulfilling for them. Usually uh, we'll say that this is incompatible with mental health issues. So the idea is if you have this kind of enlightenment, you have solved all of your mental health issues. Um, usually very integrated, very aligned, very focused. They get things done without having chatter in their brain. Um, and then there is a standard, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> standard enlightenment um which is like the very traditional kind i think it's the jed mckenna kind i tried to read one of his books once um but it's very like a uh, spiritual enlightenment uh the sense of the divine like there's nowhere to go because we're already here sort of like realizing your true self you know no self ego death usually falls into this very strongly um and then there's traditional enlightenment which i understand the least because i only talked to one person who seems to be in this category, um, but seems to have like very strong beliefs in like nirvana and reincarnation in the karma cycle and places a lot of importance on like doing the traditionally good things, um, a lot of importance on ethics and love and, um, and like uh, the, the correct rules for behavior. And then the last kind of enlightenment is a uh, pleasure enlightenment. So some people consider uh, enlightenment to be like hitting a max amount of just joy on a constant basis. So they've wireheaded themselves out, nirvana, bliss, love, all this stuff going on. Um, those are the six. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool. Cause the one, the traditional enlightenment one that you said you have very few cases of, I think that would be my buddy in England. So I think when we're done, I'll okay. actually, I'll mention him in a tweet with you and you can follow it up if you want or not. I or would whatever. be very interested in talking. I, for I more think people. he's, I think he's so, on that, on that, cool. on that vibe. So is this all people who self-identify as enlightened? <laughs> that, that's your selection criteria? A lot of them don't self-identify as enlightened. Uh, um, I, I'm using the word enlightened as like a kind of a catch-all for like the woo thing that your face does when you realize what you are. I don't know, but um, a lot of people will say awakened or stream entry. A lot of people will refuse to have a label at all, despite responding to my interviews um, and, and describing a lot of the same things. They'll be like, no, 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 I'm not enlightened. I'm not awakened. I'm not anything. Yet I have these incredible mystical experiences where like, I realized that all is one and all this stuff. Uh, so really wide variation. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So are you enlightened now? <laughs> I, I would have achieved, I guess, standard enlightenment by this definition. Okay. Um, or not enlightenment by other definitions. I, uh, it doesn't really matter. Interesting. So you do, you do identify as standard enlightenment in that, in that model. Interesting. It, it describes my experiences pretty well. Yeah. And is that largely from the acid? <coughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. You know how people who meditate, they have some sort of rule of thumb for how much meditation you have to do to be enlightened. Mm -hmm. Is there a similar rule of thumb for how much acid you have to do to be enlightened? <laughs> I don't know. You I think it's like a really your mileage varies. You should map that out. You should get some of your rationalist homies to do some data analysis <laughs> on that. That would be, a, that'd that be, would think, be funny. That'd be think piece of the year. Let's call up uh Gwern or whatever. Have him, have him like tell us. Ex I want to know exactly how much LSD I have to do to reach enlightenment. I'll do it. I really wish it worked like that. You don't um, think it's, there's got to be some somewhat standard, you know, uh, 
there's got there's got to be some sort of causal inference on average how much like, acid when you I need to do. first started doing acid and I was having all these like really incredible experiences I was like oh this is just the thing that people have when they're on acid and then I fed acid to a lot of other people irresponsibly and they did not have the same reaction I did so I I, I it's po- very possible that many other people could do the same amount that I did and not get anywhere um, whereas meditation might work for them a lot better I really have no idea Man, I got a bad feeling after this interview. You're going to get some crazy DMs from people claiming to be enlightened, people watching my channel. <laughs> like, uh, sure. <laughs> I wonder how many people are going to DM you telling you that they're like pleasure enlightened and they have like. I would be curious. Yeah. <laughs> I have a uh, Discord for people who have, who are one of these things. So. Oh, cool. So you put all these enlightened people into a, into mm-hmm. a basket and you have them yeah, enlighten them each other. <laughs> Is it just for the research purposes or is it, is there a larger kind of community building aspect to it? Um, I'm mostly interested in the research, but if the community comes secondarily, I would be interested. The thing that got me into this in itself was hearing like high, highly respected teachers dissing each other, being like, Oh, they don't understand. They're really misled. And so if like really highly respected teachers are having disagreements, I want to see like those disagreements worked out. And so I'm trying to replicate this a little bit with, this discord chat just to see if they like combat each other with their disagreement so far it's been really nice they've been so nice to each other i'm so mad that it's, it, i shouldn't be complaining that's really cool so have you from your research so so far have you extracted any particular patterns or insights on you know uh what is correlated with enlightenment no no not um, yet People seem to report a higher sense of well-being almost universally. That seems to be the most agreed upon thing. So, so agreement with the statement, like I am at peace, for example, it's very strong. Based. Very nice. Well, Ayla, I don't want to abuse your time. I'm sure you have uh, many interesting rationalist dates to go on and (laughs) games to create and, and, and a book to write. So I'm just kind of curious, is there anything else that, uh, maybe my audience might be especially interested in that uh, we did not get to address or anything you thought I would ask you about that I didn't. Uh, ben, do you have any? It's kind of on pause. Yeah. It's, it, the thing is, it's really hard to think of good categories. Yeah. I'll bring it back uh, due to popular demand. I will bring it back eventually, but uh, it's on pause. Unfortunately, do you have any questions for Ayla? You think you're Aspie, but you're not diagnosed. Is that right? Correct. Yes. A lot of people tell me I'm Aspie, which is where I get my evidence. So, Do you, you know, there's this popular idea that women on the internet have it harder, right? Like if you're a woman on, if you're a public figure on Twitter, it's harder to be a woman because you get, you know, threats and harassment. And that's what they say. Do you agree with this or do you think that's baloney? I don't know. I think I seem to be pretty insensitive to identity-based harassment as in if it happens, I don't really notice it or process it as being like related to my gender. I just don't really process things as related to my gender, I think, unless it's very clearly related to my gender. So I, I just don't have that experience. Do you, do, you, do you observe in other women in particular, perhaps even especially younger women who maybe have interesting ideas, they have creative projects they have stuff to offer the world, but they, because they are affected by, you know, what people say about them or these fears or anxieties around being a woman on the internet. 
do you, do you observe anything in 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 other women that you think they they really misunderstand or they're getting wrong or that they're overestimating or underestimating that is kind of holding them back? And I ask because you're you know someone who's clearly I think uh, been quite good at just basically ignoring the haters and and doing your own thing to a lot of success. Yeah. Uh- I, I mean, this is another thing I write about a lot is like um, getting rid of cultural narratives around, especially trauma. Um, but I think usually if you're told that you should expect to have this bad thing happen to you, that you are more likely to interpret things through the lens of that bad thing. And I think that this is like often not useful. I think like I like that I don't interpret things through the lens of gender because it just it just doesn't bother me anymore. Like I don't think about it. And it seems like a lot healthier of a way to be. Um, and so just like, just, just like, don't f- buy into like culture telling you that you should be upset about a thing and then you should be have a better time. I hope. Right on, right on. Do you think there are any particular areas of research or intellectual exploration that are currently being underexplored that are particularly rife terrain to be tilled by interesting potential internet provocateurs? I'm very curious about um, IQ and genetics and also eugenics. Um, Yeah. Say more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm mostly just curious to see more research on and discussion on it in general that isn't a dumpster fire because it's either like full racists trying to like use it to do their racist things or people reacting to what they suspect to be racist doing the racist things. And there's not like a lot of room for people to actually be doing interesting research. Yeah. I think you're right that eugenics is a really uh, hot button sort of ignored terrain because it's sort of, it's sort of latent in so much that is very popular right now. Like I always talk about this with respect to abortion. <coughs> Like the people, there are so many kind of actually relatively educated and intelligent women out there, especially younger women who, especially obviously left-wing women who are adamantly pro-abortion and will wring their hands if you say anything about eugenics. And yeah, it, it, it to me that that's kind of like pedophilia and necrophilia. Uh, this is this is one of those kind of explosive uh, kind of knots in in the public culture it's kind of brushed under the rug by everyone and and it's really morally charged people get people freak out if you get anywhere near it which and i don't yet, get yeah and this is this is maybe like one of the strongest topics where i just am so disconnected from public discourse because like if someone was like i think someone was talking about eugenics at one point and i was like what is that and they just explained well and I was like, oh, that seems like obviously good. We should be doing eugenics. Like, what is the big deal? And then some people would freak out about it and be like, what are you? I just like, I really don't understand why people are so up in arms about this. Let's eugenics everything. Yeah. Ben just said it's it's the stigma from the Nazis. Uh, right. I definitely think the Fucking word Nazis. eugenics has this particular charge. Like that word has a charge that comes from <coughs> associations with the Nazis for sure. I think that's true. I mean, I don't think it's that really, I don't, I don't think it's a very interesting debate. So I, I won't really like pose it as a debate, but I, I kind of do rep a little bit the, the anti-eugenic perspective in that. I mean, I, if you're genuinely, if you're genuinely confused about the the underlying logic that I think makes sense, I, I could capitulate, I could recapitulate that for you. I think that the, the basic insight that makes sense out of it is that there is this way in which, um, 
ra- human rationality can uh, lead to uh, consequences that or that are horrifying. Uh, it's 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 basically encoded, as I'm sure you probably know, right? In in Christianity, quite mm-hmm. well, it's right. It's like the Faustian bargain. It's like you can um, you can have a lot if you make a bargain with the devil. You can have uh, a whole lot, but it's going to it's going to bite you in the ass in some way that you don't expect down the line. Yeah. And and I think there I think there is a lot of truth to that. That's not just superstition, and it's not just kind sure. of anti intellectualism. Um, I I do think that there's a fairly justified fear that. It, I mean, th- look, this, this could be the great filter, right? This is a common idea, even in the rationalist sphere. I like to basically, when I, when I disagree with rationalist ideas, I try to do it with rationalist ideas because, um, I think that just works the best so and makes most yeah. sense to people who are rationalists. You know, the, the, the whole idea of the great filter, a very, uh, plausible, rational, possible answer to the, to the great filter question is that pretty much societies become overly rational. They become too civilized. They become too complex, too good at technology, too good at what the Frankfurt school would call instrumental rationality. And at a certain point, it could just be the case that any advanced society becomes so instrumentally rational that it offs itself in some way. Uh, that that's really consistent. Uh, and I, I don't think that's outlandish. I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's implausible. And I think the Christian uh, kind of anti the anti-rational aspects of Christianity that basically say, you know, we really need to put uh, a ceiling on the application of rationality to human life. I think it's it's a kind of encoded ancient traditional wisdom that is pretty much trying to uh, prevent that type of long term civilizational uh, problem is how I think about it. Yeah, I think that this is likely. I think this is like a pretty good argument um there's just like no way that any one of our minds can like comprehend the side effects of injecting rationality into a culture that was did not evolve for it seems legit i, I mean i generally still prefer movement towards increased rationality and then i my, my philosophy is like throw it in that direction that will work out the kinks afterwards right yeah fair enough well this was really fun, Ayla. It was good to get to know you in person. I've you've been on my radar for a long time. We've interacted here and there on Twitter, but I really didn't know too much about you or what you were like. And uh, so this has been fun and edifying. And thank you for coming on to hang <laughs> cool. out. With me. It's a good note to end on eugenics. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> sure. And uh, cool. thanks, thanks for talking to me, especially with your strep throat. Thanks for um, you know, soldiering <laughs> sure. through. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.